0: The court officer read off the first three charges, and I was found not guilty of the first three charges. And then the next charge was read off, and suddenly they said the words guilty. And then another charge was read off and the word guilty. And another charge was read off and it was the word guilty. I remember as I sat there, I couldn't, I couldn't believe my own hearing. I thought that maybe I missed the word not. And I remember screaming out to my lawyer. And he said, not now. And I was just sitting there at the table, just just stunned. I felt like my heart stopped and I turned white as a sheet.
1: This is For Life, the podcast from Sony Pictures Television and ABC. I'm your host, Isaac Wright Jr. In America, it is estimated that there are thousands of wrongful convictions each year. Thousands more are overcharged and oversentenced. In 1991, I was one of the thousands of people wrongfully convicted of a crime. I was sentenced to life in prison, and unfortunately, had no hope for freedom and no one to fight for me other than myself. I taught myself the law, and as a paralegal, I was able to help some of my fellow inmates get reduced sentences and released from wrongful convictions while seeking my own justice. After eventually getting my own conviction overturned, I became a lawyer, and have continued to be an advocate for those in need. My story also inspired the new fictional drama series For Life on ABC, but there are so many others with stories like mine. In this six-part series, we're hearing real-life first-person accounts of other wrongfully convicted men and women who against all odds prevailed, were exonerated, and emerge from their unthinkable adversity with grace and purpose. These are stories of tenacity, faith, friendship, transformation, compassion, and family. Our first story takes us to Peekskill, New York in 1990. It's about Jeffrey Deskovic, a man who despite countless setbacks would not give up his fight to win back his freedom. Jeffrey's story is one of perseverance and tenacity a dogged determination he did not find until he entered those prison gates. This is Jeffrey's story. My name is Jeffrey Deskovic.
0: Back in 1990, I was a 16 year old growing up in Peekskill, New York. With my mother and my grandmother and my brother, there wasn't really a lot of excitement or drama or tension or danger. When I went to school, I was quiet, I didn't really fit in. I might be what would be thought of as a nerd. I had excelled in grade school to the point that I was allowed to skip a grade. I was a year younger than everybody else so in high school I didn't know the students there. They were like chasing girls, going to parties, drinking alcohol and that really wasn't my thing. On the other hand, after school in the apartment complex that I grew up in, I was kind of like the life of the party. We used to play basketball, ride bikes, swim. We would play Monopoly, we would go to the movies. And I was kind of like an all-American kid in a way.
2: My name is Linda McGar, and I am the mother of Jeffrey Mark Desquette. He was very smart. He attended the Catholic school. He was an altar boy. And uh, the
0: teachers just loved him over there. Angela Correa was another student in Peekskill High School that I knew in passing. She was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. Uh, I knew her name, she knew mine, that was the extent of it. So the the backstory to everything is that Angela was in a photography class, and the instructor gave an assignment to the class to take pictures of foliage. Angela decided to go to the park on her own to take pictures. That, as I understand it, that was the first and only time she ever went anywhere in Peekskill by herself. I became a suspect in the case for a few reasons. Firstly, the Peekskill Police Department interviewed many students from the high school And some of them told the police that they might want to talk to me because I seemed strange to them because I didn't fit in. Another factor was the police thought that I was overly upset at the victim having been murdered. They interpreted my being emotional as me expressing
1: remorse for something that I had done. At his classmate's funeral, Jeffrey cried openly and was extremely emotional. Because the two weren't believed to be close friends, his behavior raised questions. When police asked to interview Jeffrey, he was willing to cooperate, but his mother, Linda, was worried the officers might try to manipulate him.
2: Well, the reason I told him not to talk to the police, they have a way of turning things around, they twist the stories. And the reason I told him was because I was afraid maybe they might beat him up maybe something might happen.
1: Jeffrey was continuously approached by the police when his mother wasn't around. Although this scared him, it also made him feel important. Despite his mother's warnings, Jeffrey agreed to be interviewed by the police.
0: For about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would talk to me pretending like they needed my help to solve the crime. They made me feel important. The police got me to agree to take a lie detector test. The police drove me to the town of Brewster, which is located in Putnam County. The reason why that's important is that that meant I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. I was totally dependent on the police. I was not used to talking to adult males. My father was never involved in my life and I certainly had, you know, had never been a suspect in a case, or if I've been questioned, I was put into a small room where the polygrapher gave me countless cups of coffee. So, after finishing the coffee routine, I was then attached to the polygraph, and then the polygraphist launched into his third degree tactics. He raised his voice at me, he invaded my personal space, he kept asking me the same questions over and over again. As each hour passed, my fear increased in proportion to the time. Towards the end of the interrogation, he made a statement to me. He said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. When he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. At that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were gonna harm me, but that he was holding them off, but couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, only being concerned with my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was, that nobody else knew where I was either, loomed very large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. So I made a decision to make up a story based upon the information that they had given me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the six weeks run up to it, as well as some items from the newspaper. By the time it was all finished, I was curled up into a fetal position on the floor, crying uncontrollably. They drove me back to the police headquarters. They told me in the car that we were gonna have pizza at the headquarters. As I was eating the pizza, I was interrupted by a uniformed police officer who was carrying out different aspects of the processing. He put ink on my fingers, and that really got me angry. And I said, why is he doing that? I've got ink on my fingers now. I'm I'm here trying to eat pizza. And the officer told me, he has a right to do that. And I replied, what do you mean he has a right to do that? I was told that I was not going to be arrested. And that's when he informed me that, well, you are being charged with a crime. And it was at that moment that I, that it, the enormity of the situation and really what had happened started to dawn on me.
2: I was coming home a little bit late that night because I was working overtime. And I, uh, I went to the pizza place and I ordered some pizza and a, a couple of dinners and I, my mother called the police up and told me what happened that Jeffrey was arrested and I, I went berserk I said what? What? I couldn't believe it. I was in shock I hurried up, I got out of there I went down to the Peekskill Police Department. You know I want to know what what's going on and what happened and this and that and they really didn't want to tell me much Jeffrey was a nervous wreck and he was sweating and He was very scared, I could
0: see. It was dramatic when I first saw my mother. I felt kind of like how somebody might feel if you see somebody and they're thinking or gonna say to you, I I told you so. I also felt silly for not listening to her.
2: I was so upset and nervous and I had to call my family to come down to the police department. And they had a way, they're trying to tell him, well, just tell us that you did it, Jeffrey, and you know, everything will be all right, you can go home. And I told them that was a the trick. They, they like to trick people. And that's what happened. He was tricked. I knew he didn't do it. I didn't have no $50,000 at that time that I could go get a, a good lawyer for Jeffrey. I just didn't have the money.
0: Going with the public defender was really the only option we had. Initially, it was kind of in a state of disbelief. and. In a lot of ways I felt like my life was over, so I was in the county jail for about 35 days. When I did get bailed out, um, my life was totally different. I wasn't allowed to go to school. Everybody thought that I was guilty and everybody hated me, and so shortly thereafter I tried to commit suicide. I took an entire bottle of extra strength Tylenol and I was taken to the a hospital to pump my stomach, and I was involuntarily committed. I was just so over my head in every possible way.
1: Jeffrey's involuntary commitment to a mental institution for treatment and monitoring lasted six months. As the case against him moved forward, Jeffrey's family also struggled to cope.
2: We were all emotional. Really, we kept the door locked. We didn't go out during the day to get any food. I had to go out at midnight because people were hounding us and knocking on our windows and, and scaring, scaring us and scaring his brother and to the point that his younger brother, Chris, he was afraid to go to school on the bus because the kids were taking pens and pencils and they were trying to stick it in his eyes and it really, it got worse and worse. I got in touch with all the people that we knew and we had asked them to write letters to the judge, expressing what they thought of Jeffrey. And they all wrote beautiful letters saying he came from a good family and his mother loves him and his grandmother loves him. And they never seen anything bad out of him. I mean, for God's sake, the elderly people that lived in my building, Jeffrey used to knock on the door and ask them if they needed anything from the store, like maybe they needed some milk or a loaf of bread. And he never hurt nobody.
1: Jeffrey's trial began shortly after his 17th birthday. He was tried as an adult in criminal court. Before the trial, Jeffrey submitted his DNA for testing, but the prosecution focused on his coerced confession. That was their only solid evidence against Jeffrey.
0: I was 16 when I was arrested, but I was 17 years old at the time the trial commenced. The prosecutor's false narrative is he said that I was obsessed over her and that I was jealous, and they they said that I, um, that I attacked her, that she ran, that I tackled her, that I strangled her, that I raped her, and then I then dragged her body to a different part of the path, and then covered her body up with leaves. I could not even believe what the police were saying that I did when I heard it, when the a uh, DNA test result came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen found the victim didn't match me. I thought that was strong evidence of my innocence.
1: And I began to believe that I would be found not guilty. On December 7th, 1990, the jury reached a verdict. The court officer read off the first three charges
0: and I was found not guilty of the first three charges. And my mother reacted, and I think that she thought the case was over. She stood up and she started like cheering like somebody might if they were at a sporting event and the team had you know just scored a touchdown. And then the next charge was read off and suddenly they said the words guilty. And then another charge was read off and the word guilty. And another charge was read off and there was the word guilty. I remember as I sat there I couldn't I couldn't believe my own hearing. I thought that maybe I missed the word not. And I remember screaming out to my lawyer. And he said not now. And I was just sitting there at the table, just just stunned. I felt like my heart stopped and I turned white as a sheet.
1: In prison, Jeffrey was discovering his will to fight and never give up. This tenacity can also be found in Sony and ABC's fictional drama series, For Life. Here's executive producer and actor Curtis 50 Cent Jackson speaking about how it plays an important role in the series. I think the project is a symbol of hope. It shows that you can make it under circumstances that you probably don't believe you can. To see people find things within themselves, a way out of a situation that they would clearly not appear to be a way out of that situation. And each individual have those obstacles in their life. And it's just one of those things that I think people will create a connection with that when they see it. Watch the new drama series, For Life, Tuesdays on ABC. Now, back to Jeffrey's story.
2: This was a terrible, terrible nightmare. It took him right out of the pew over there in the court, and he was crying. It was very hard for me and my sister we had we had to control ourselves, but we gotta keep it all quiet. I didn't want Jeffrey to see me crying and and, and going crazy in there. you know that would have made things worse.
0: I was in the county jail for approximately one month before the sentencing. I begged the judge to overturn the verdict. I referenced the DNA and he told me on the record, he acknowledged that the DNA didn't match me and he acknowledged that he had received a lot of letters from family and friends, most of which expressed their belief in my innocence. He actually told me on the record Maybe you are innocent, but that didn't lead him to step up for justice by overturning the conviction, which he could have done by overturning any number of rulings that he made against me. I had been charged as an adult, and I was therefore given an adult sentence, and I was sent to uh, a men's maximum security prison.
1: Jeffrey was found guilty of first-degree rape and second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 15 years to life.
0: thought my life was over, it was unfathomable to me to be able to serve 15 years and then go home.
2: I felt a very cold feeling. It was a very scary feeling. And I would never want to ever feel like that again, as long as I live.
0: I remember the first night I spent in the prison. It was a very small cell. I was looking out the window and i remember thinking to myself this is the same sky that i used to look up at and watch when i was free there was plenty of violence in the prison there were maybe three or four stabbings or cuttings every day there was plenty of violence that didn't involve weapons and there was a lot of gang activity so there was a general atmosphere of uh, violence and adrenaline that permeated the air. So I was always on, on a high alert, you know, paying attention to everything. Minded my business, I never, I never gambled, I never got involved in discussions about what was gonna be watched on television. When I was in my cell, I was always quiet. While I never internalized the prison culture or the way that violence was so prevalent and seemed to be the answer for everything, I, I had to pretend like Those things didn't bother me. I couldn't give a visual reaction because I didn't want to have a problem with somebody else.
2: And I was just afraid something was going to happen. And I was worried about him. All I could do was keep praying and going, making trips. I made three trips every week. And sometimes I would get a hotel room. My sister and I would stay and then go back the next day. So he had like a double back-to-back visit and we'd stay all day. And I was just happy that I had my sister with me. You know, it's a very hard situation to go to, because, and this should never happen to nobody.
0: I had to fight to defend myself while I was in prison. And I was this 17 year old white kid from suburbs who didn't do very much fighting. And I was in a men's maximum security prison. So I used to get beat up a lot, frankly. There were a few old timers that took me under their wing. They would give me different tips and they would try to explain to me how to survive. You have to stand up for yourself. Win, lose or draw, you have to fight back. If you do that, then people will respect you. And if you don't do that, if you let people hit you, if you let anybody take anything from you, you're opening the door for that to happen by virtually everybody. The beginning of my advocating for myself was shortly after I arrived in Elmira. There was an old timer who said to me, you, you need to go to the law library to learn the law so that you can help your attorney. I had a terrible experience with my trial attorney in which he essentially didn't defend me. So I didn't trust to rely on lawyers. And so I used to go to the library and learn the law around the issues pertaining to my case. I would send suggestions to the lawyer that I had been assigned to. I wasn't serving a 15 to life sentence. I was just doing a year or two until the next appeal was decided, which I was sure that I was gonna win because I was innocent and I believed in the system and I naively thought that the higher up in the court system one went, the more accurate it got. I
1: Wrote a lot of letters looking for help. I lost seven appeals. Losing appeals was devastating and demoralizing, but no matter how painful each loss was, Jeffrey knew that giving up would hurt more. Year after year, he continued to fight. Each time
0: I lost, the crash back down to earth was loud and hard, and it was almost like I was found guilty all over again, and I would have to metaphorically pick myself up and dust myself off and reorient myself for the next appeal and start believing in that. After the four years of writing letters and looking for help and not getting answers back and then being denied by the parole board because I maintained my innocence and rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, which is what they wanted to hear. By year 15, which is where all that takes me to, I was pretty much at the end of my rope. I had to repeatedly fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, of wanting to give up. I mean, to be in prison, I mean, you're in hell basically. And who wants to stay in hell all day? So I found things to do. So learning the law was kind of a solace for me. It felt empowering. I used to read books, nonfiction books, three or four a week it's for eight years. I think my favorite was the book that indirectly led to my freedom called Chicken Soup for the Prisoner's Soul. And it was kind of an anthology. One of those stories was from the book called The Warden Wore Pink. And it was by Tecla Miller. And it was her memoirs from when she was a warden of a maximum security prison in California. I was trying to write Tecla through the publishing company. I thought that her walk of life would have led her to either have come in contact with someone who could help me or that she possibly would come across somebody. That's the letter that was actually forwarded to Claudia Whitman.
3: My name is Claudia Whitman, kind of a snoop by nature. So being an investigator really suits my personality and my interests. Jeffrey was my first involvement with an
0: exoneration. I sent her a copy of my legal paperwork In order to prove to her that the DNA didn't match me. She had never heard of a case prior to that where somebody had been convicted despite a negative DNA test. She immediately believed in my innocence and we corresponded for about a year.
3: I did start corresponding with him and he was dogged. That was the first thing I would say and I used to joke that he was kind of a pain in the butt because he just Never let go. Once I started corresponding with him, I was getting letters all the time, and he was pushing this idea and that idea, and can you check on this? Can you check on that? I soon discovered that the person who had done the DNA testing on his case was, I guess, the original DNA person at Quantico, the FBI headquarters. I simply wrote him an email and said, do you remember this case? He looked it up and got back to me and said, I definitely testified in that case and there was no match in DNA. And he said, that guy's not still in prison, is he? And I said, yeah, he sure is. And he hasn't been able to get any help. How could he have gotten convicted with a non-match in DNA?
0: One of the ideas that she suggested to me proved to be the winning one, which was write the Innocence Project again. I wrote them back in 92-93, but they had rejected my case then. Their way of dealing with cases back then was to take cases where DNA testing was an option and then present that evidence to the court as something that was newly discovered. That was not an option in my case because the DNA was already known before the trial that it didn't match me. So um, they didn't know what to do. Fast forwarding back to 2005, Claudia Whitman told me that in light of the DNA data bank being created, which meant that we could take the crime scene DNA and compare it to anybody whose DNA was in the data bank, that the prior denial was irrelevant. The Innocence Project exonerated me. They secured further DNA testing which identified the actual criminal and the results matched the actual perpetrator.
3: I got a call from one of the lawyers saying, Jeff, has just been exonerated. It's over. When anyone goes to prison, the whole family, in a sense, goes to prison. They, They had said to me, you know,
2: Mrs. McGall, please, I want you to sit down. And I said, what's going on? What happened? Please. And then they told me that they were letting Jeffrey out tomorrow. And I was, I was, I don't know, crying and, and praising the Lord. And I was so happy to hear this good news. And uh, Jeffrey could not believe he was getting out. I couldn't really believe her at first either.
1: In the visiting room of Sing Sing, a maximum security penitentiary in Ossining, New York, Jeffrey met with his Innocence Project lawyer, Nina Morrison.
0: I was in the prison visiting room with Nina Morrison in Sing, Sing. and Nina told me that the DNA results were in. And I said, well, what do you mean the items have been tested? I mean, it's not supposed to be tested for another month. And she said, no, the district attorney pulled some strings at the lab and she got them to do the testing sooner. And then she dropped the bombshell. She said, the results match the actual perpetrator. You're going home tomorrow. And I said to her, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth like three times. And for the ne- I had a mental paralysis then. So for the next three and a half hours, I sat there and she literally held my hand as my hand my head kept spinning. And I was talking to her about all these different topics going from one subject to the next, and one issue didn't have anything to do with the other. And periodically, she would interrupt me and say, are you ready to talk about tomorrow yet?
1: And I said, no. On September 20th, 2006, Jeffrey Deskovic was released from prison. He had served 16 years.
0: My first night of freedom, I went to my aunt's house, and I did a couple things I had wanted to do. I just sat outside during the darkness. When they had the prison yard open, as soon as it would get dark, they would close the yard and you had to go inside. The other thing was I took a bath. It took a long time for me to really realize that I was free, I had a fear that stayed in my mind, that I really wasn't free, that it was all just a dream, that I couldn't, that I finally lost my mind, that I couldn't, you know, that I would wake up and just still see the cell bars. By being incarcerated, in terms of what I missed most, by not being free, high school, prom, graduating high school, births, deaths, weddings, finishing education at a more traditional age, going through the rites of passage at the that people go through. I mean, those were my formative years. Many things I had to learn to do when I was released I had never done before. I never lived on my own or had a driver's license or went shopping. I never had to pay bills, write checks. The world was much different on top of that. Culture was different, technology was different. We didn't have GPS cell phones. The internet hadn't been invented. I was released when I was 32 and I felt like I was 17.
2: When he got out, you could see that they had done a job on him. And by that I mean they hurt my son's soul. He was scared. He was like a a scared little rabbit coming out of a cage. He thought somebody was going to come behind him and hit him or do something to him. He, he, He couldn't get over that he didn't have to ask for permission from
0: anybody anymore. I can't describe what it's like to go from freedom to prison. I mean, one thing is does not resemble the other in any way, shape, form, or fashion. On one hand, you're free, you're able to come and go, and you're able to make decisions and you're in a normal environment. My life since my exoneration's been a whirlwind of activity. I don't sleep a lot. I've become an advocate. I do a lot of presentations across the country and so I regularly meet with elected officials and ask them to make changes in the justice system, policy changes to make the system more accurate. I've paired my advocacy work with education. So I got the scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree. I was able to get a master's degree from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. my master's thesis was written on wrongful conviction cause and reform. And this past May, I graduated from the Elizabeth Haupt School of Law at Pace University. I got a law degree and I passed the bar exam in the furtherance of my dream of exonerating others as an attorney. I was financially compensated and I wanted to take my advocacy work to the next level, so I used some of the money to start a nonprofit organization called the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And we've been able to free seven wrongfully convicted people. In six years, we've been able to help pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. So my educational life has been great. My professional life's been good. I feel like I've made a lot of progress on the mental health side of things. The part of my life which is the most difficult, I would say, is the uh, social life, just in terms of trying to put together a new social life.
2: He missed out on a lot. He didn't have any, you know, no dating of any girls or, or any of this. I mean, he had, that's what he missed. I'm very proud of him, of course. And I I really wish him a lot of happiness, and I hope he'll be the most successful man in the whole world. But he gets these, these poor victims out. I mean, he really, he helps them to find a place to live, and he helps them with the food. One man was in prison. For 23 years, I mean wrongfully convicted. And he got him out. It's just wonderful. It really is. And it makes me feel good for you, Jeffrey. You've got justice for that man. I told Jeffrey when you are doing a case, I want to be in that courtroom. I'll be quiet as a mouse, I promise. I want to be in that courtroom. And I want to see you in action.
0: The advice I would give to other people who are wrongfully imprisoned is never give up. Study the law, study your case. Receiving a warm reception from people, following a presentation or something where people meet me and they learn of my story, that makes me smile. But even more than that, just seeing other people be free. I consider that my mission in the world is to fight wrongful conviction and to work for justice reform and. That's how I make sense of everything that happened to me.
1: For 16 long years, Jeffrey Deskovich's unyielding tenacity was his saving grace. Today, the same tenacity drives his tireless pursuit of justice. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, there have been a total of over 2,400 exonerations in the U.S. since 1989, accounting for more than 21,000 total years lost in prison. In 2018, the Deskovic Foundation championed a bill to establish the country's first and only state commission on prosecutorial conduct, an independent oversight committee to investigate allegations of wrongdoing brought against district attorneys. On March 27, 2019, the bill was signed into law. In the next chapter of For Life, the podcast, we'll meet a man who held on to faith despite tragic circumstances, including losing one of the most important people in his life. Here is a preview of the other stories coming up in our series.
3: I came to believe that it was my mission in life to go to prison, because they did help change the law in California from prison.
1: Prison will either destroy you or bring out that which is the best in you. To see him come out of prison and walk
2: the life that he's walking, it is an honor. It may sound
1: strange, but it's an honor to be his mom. I had to learn the difference between being who I am and being what they wanted me to become. For Life, the podcast is produced by TreeFort. Executive producers are Lisa Ammerman and Kelly Gardner for TreeFort and Nicholas Austin and Nathan Staudinger for Sony Pictures Television. Our producer is Tana E. Seabrook. With additional production help from Jamie Tenenbaum, Tim Schauer, and June Rosen. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor with production and editing by Jasper Leak and production assistance from Elijah Wells. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to raise awareness and get the word out so more people can hear these powerful stories. The stories in this podcast are real. While the television series was inspired by my life, That story, including all characters, events, incidents, portrayed scenes and dialogue, is fictitious. And be sure to watch Sony Pictures Television and ABC's drama series, For Life, Tuesdays on ABC. I'm Isaac Wright Jr. Thank you.